Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining us here today. I just finished talking with Kristen Stapleton about her new book, Fact in Fiction, 1920s China and Bajin's Family. This came out in 2016 with Stanford University Press. So the book is a really, really interesting contextualization and opening up of 1920s Chengdu. Now, Ba Jin, as you'll hear about um, briefly in the conversation to follow, wrote this trilogy called the Turbulent Stream Trilogy, um, which included three novels, um, and which were all set in the reformist 1920s in Chengdu, which was his hometown. And what Kristen does in this book is she moves us through um, chapter by chapter using important figures in the trilogy to open up a discussion of and an introduction to some of the kinds of people um, who were living in, making lives in, um, transforming themselves in, trying to get by in the context of this really turbulent period after the May 4th movement in Chengdu. So it's a, it's a really fascinating book if you are interested in cities in China, if you are importantly thinking about teaching modern Chinese history. Um, and one of the things that you'll hear us talking about is the usefulness for teachers who want to teach with Bajin's novels um, in high school, in university, really at all levels, um, to use this book as a way to um, uh, contextualize that um, so that we can know how to teach it um, most effectively. It's also just a really fascinating set of stories and use of sources to give life to um, kinds of people that don't often or certainly not always come up in historical accounts um, of modern cities. Um, so with that, I will leave you to it. Um, it's, a, again, a really, really interesting and very, very readable and well-written book as well. So I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy. And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening and for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Kristen Stapleton about her new book, Fact in Fiction. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. And thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward. Thank you. So let's start with the big question before we dive into the book. How did you come to work on China um, and why modern China in particular? I got very interested in China when I was in high school. Uh, my high school had a unit that introduced Chinese culture. And what really interested me was philosophy, believe it or not. We read the Analects in Translation, and I found it very fascinating. And so I decided to study Chinese when I went to college. At that point, I, th I thought to myself, I really want to study abroad. So I did my junior year in Taiwan. And that's when I got very interested in modern history because uh, people in Taiwan in the early 1980s uh, had a very particular view of Chinese modern Chinese history that was very different from what I had been taught. And so I got very fascinated at this divergent story that I'd heard, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I went back to college, finished my, my, my senior year, and applied for graduate school in history with an interest in modern Chinese history. 
Awesome. And you're, you're probably hearing the police sirens in the background, which is a nice way to um, pre- or preface or presage the fact that we'll be talking about police records, I think, later on. <laughs> so that'll set the stage. So thank you so much. So that brought you to Modern China. Let's talk a little bit about how you came to this particular project. And I'll just say a few words to kind of introduce the project for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. So the book opens onto a political crisis in China and a spirit of reform that's touched off by student demonstrations on May 4th, 1919. And this is going to open out into the May 4th movement that many listeners are probably familiar with. Now, Ba Jin, the author, was a teenager from a well-off family in Chengdu during this period. He wrote three novels, Family, Spring, and Autumn, that are collectively known as the Turbulent Stream Trilogy, that are set in the reformist 1920s and in his hometown of Chengdu, and these became extremely popular. And you talk about that um, a, a bit at the beginning and the end of the book. Now, the book focuses on one of these novels in particular, Family, in order to look carefully at the ways that Chengdu in the May 4th era inspired Ba Jin's fiction. And the book does a lot of other kinds of work as well. And it's also extremely readable and a real pleasure to read. So I want to get that um, right on the table right away. So Kristen, how did you come to this particular project? Why Ba Jin? And how did you decide to devote a monograph to situating this particular book in time and space? I guess the story begins with my spending the summer of 1984 in Chengdu. At that time, I had just been in in Taiwan studying Chinese for the year, and I decided I really wanted to go to mainland China, which was a little difficult at the time because relations between Taiwan and the mainland were quite bad. Uh, But I did manage to find a language program in, in Chengdu at Sichuan University that summer and spent the summer there and was really fascinated by Chengdu, which I hadn't heard of before. And I got to know the city pretty well, riding my bike around, and I decided to myself, you know, I want to study modern history and I want to come back here to do it. And so I sort of turned myself into a a Sichuan Chengdu specialist. Sichuan is the the province that Chengdu is in. Chengdu is the capital of it. And so when I proposed a a research project when I was in graduate school, I said, I want to look at how Chengdu itself has changed over the modern period. So I went there and I did actually did my dissertation on, on the police the institution of the police and how it was transformed, particularly in the years, uh, the the early years of the 20th century. And that got me even more familiar with the city. Uh, and so I published a book based on my dissertation. But I thought to myself, you know, this book is not necessarily going to reach a lot of readers because it, it is somewhat technical. I'd like to reach more. And how could I do that? And that's when I hit upon the idea of using this novel, because the novel is actually a bestseller. It was very popular in China, as you mentioned. And it's also been translated into many different languages, including English, and is sometimes even used by historians to teach about the May 4th movement, because basically it's a book that young people really love. It was written by a young man about his own family. It's full of passion. And so the, the book is pretty powerful. I thought maybe I could harness that power to get people interested in Chengdu. Uh, so use it as a way to, as an entree into the city. But then the more I got into it, the more I thought, you know, uh, Bajin's picture of Chengdu is not necessarily the picture that historians would, would approve of because, you know, he had his own personal political agenda that he put into his novel. And uh, 
I could also use this project not only to attract attention to Chengdu's history, but to explore how the novel reflects history in comparison to how an historian would. So that, that's how the two purposes came together. And if I could just add a note, you know, one of the books that really inspired me to do this uh, was uh, a book I encountered my first year of teaching. I taught at the University of Kentucky my, uh, in, in the early years of my career. And uh, despite having very little training in Japanese history, I had to teach Japanese history. And everybody said to me, oh, a sign tale of Genji. And so I, I did. I assigned this great novel, Tale of Genji, and it totally mystified me. I mean, what is this novel about? And, and I was kind of lost at sea. That A lot of the students really liked it, but I had trouble myself kind of trying to figure out how to connect it to history. And then someone recommended I read Ivan Morris's uh, World of the Shining Prince, which is a book that does a sort of similar thing to my book and, and was an inspiration to me that takes the tale Genji and puts it in the history of the Heian period and uses the novel to reflect on the history and vice versa. So that was one of my, my early models for this book. That's great. And it also um, brings out uh, one of many ways, I think, of reading and using the book that are, um, I hope, going to become uh, very popular now that the book's out. And it's, it's out in a great paperback uh, version, so it's uh, it's very affordable as well. Um, anybody, I think, who's thinking of teaching modern China, um, potentially teaching family, teaching Bajin in a course in modern China, should read this book because I think uh, definitely if I have if I ever have to teach um, or I'm <laughs> going to teach a course, um, it's so useful. Um, not only you know just as a reader who's interested in this topic, but um, it's so useful in helping to. Um, so give lots of ideas about how to teach with that novel, right? And how to integrate it into um, a larger historical frame. And so this is a super, super, super useful book to prep courses as well as just to read um, for pleasure and fun and to learn a lot of stuff. Thank you. You know, the, 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 the thing about teaching with the novel family is that there's not only the English translation the original Chinese version, actually, I say original with quotation marks around it because it was revised many times over Bajin's career. But there's also a, 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 a comic strip version, a graphic novel version oh, yeah. that came out in China in 1982. And then it was translated. There's a bilingual edition of that, English and Chinese, a graphic novel version, which is a lot shorter. You know, if you're, it's, it's, we've gotten to the day where we don't assign so many long novels to our students, uh, Particularly, say, if, a, if you were a high school teacher, assign this graphic novel version, have your student, you know, your students can love the story. And then you as the teacher will know a lot more about it, I hope, through reading my book. And then also there's a fantastic film version, too, from 1956 that uh, is you know available on YouTube with subtitles, English subtitles. So I just think it's a rich cultural product that you can use to teach about early 20th century China. And so I thought it deserved a kind of... Uh, the scrutiny of a historian uh, and and a kind of kind of explanation of of its background and some of the features in it that a casual reader might not notice, but it, but a historian who knows the locality would. 
Great. Awesome. And one of the things, um, when you mentioned its usefulness and interest for a historian, and one of the things that I'm sure we'll get to over the course of the hour is how attentive and really interesting the book is about its use of sources in order to tell this story. And so we're going to be talking, I hope, a lot about that aspect of the, the historical and historiographical work that went into the book. Um, and that makes the book, I think, really, really useful to think with as a way of kind of putting together source material to tell a story that's not always the story that the novel's telling. Right. So let's actually get into it. Let's get right into the book. The book explores some major themes in the course of its chapters, and I'm just going to lay out some of them, and then um, we'll open this up a bit. Um, And you talk about this early on in the introduction. Um, One of the themes is the physical transformation of Chinese cities in the early 20th century, Um, and Chengdu is is the main event, but it also talks more broadly about Chinese cities, um, you know, just kind of more extensively in this period. Another theme is the theme of patriarchy and the confusion family and Confucians in quotes there. Another theme is militarism, militarist politics and Chinese cities in the first decades of the 20th century. Another theme is the nature of revolutions, um, both in cultural values and also in social structures in this period. And then finally, their effects, um, the effects of these revolutions, of these kind of reform efforts, um, and of all of these changes on Chinese families. Um, And so we'll talk about that, I'm sure, by the end of the conversation. Now, the book pays attention um, very carefully to many different kinds of members of the urban community in 1920s and sort of early um, 20th century Chengdu, and each chapter takes one or more characters in the trilogy as its starting point for exploring these. Um, these kinds of people include laborers, entrepreneurs, uh, members of the gentry, beggars and slaves, um, slave girls, merchants, soldiers, students, the foreign community, lots and lots of different kinds of people. So this, um, I think, might be a good place to start. Can you talk about why that was important to you as a historian? For you, what's the importance and significance of taking this kind of approach um, that highlights, um, in some cases, uh, kinds of people um, uh, who occupied the city that even Bajin didn't really write about in his book. Why is this important and interesting for you? Uh, well, I originally, actually, I, I was inspired by another book, which I should mention, uh, David Strand's Rickshaw Peking. Uh, that book also is about the 1920s and it's based in Beijing and it has a kind of different emphasis from my book on the development of kind of popular politics. And so his, his, most of his chapters kind of revolve around that, but he does adopt a similar, uh, similar approach of looking at different sectors of society. So I, I have to say that was partly inspiration. And then more immediately, again, it was kind of a, the, the reason I decided to, to devote chapters to different types of people represented in the novel more or less, as you point out, some of the, some of the chapters are about people that Bajin kind of forgets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other reason was I thought this would be useful pedagogically because um, this is this is an assignment I have my students do. I, when I have them read the novel, I actually um, organize a debate about what's wrong with China, what's wrong with our locality, what what changes need to be made, and have the students read 
a chapter, groups of students read one chapter and kind of reflect the views of the people who the chapter is about. So, and, and it, and it's good to sort of get a, a little, you know, of course, a very artificial debate, but I, I, I often play the role of Chiang Kai-shek visiting, visiting the, the Chinese president, Chiang Kai-shek visiting Chengdu, having a mass audience with the people and giving them the freedom to say, you know, what's, what's wrong with the society. <laughs> so the, that organization, I think, made it possible to 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 use the book in that way pedagogically. But then also, I like I like the theme of being able to focus, particularly the slave girl chapter in the beginning. I started with that, and it was a topic that I didn't know very much about when I really started this project in earnest a few years ago. Uh, and you know, really concentrating research on on this 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 group of people who are kind of overlooked um i think thought it made sense to use that to to put that in a in a co- kind of coherent chapter yeah let's add this is a great way to move to that chapter so this is chapter 1 um and this is a chapter that focuses on ming fang the um what the book calls the most beloved character in family now she's a slave girl who kills herself to avoid becoming an old man's concubine and she's used as a figure that opens up um, more broadly in this chapter into a, a close look at the legal and social status of slave girls and concubines in this period. Um, so the chapter asks, you know, first of all, what was a slave girl in 1920s China? Um, how would a slave girl have experienced life in the city? Sort of what can we know about this kind of figure? Now, you mentioned um, doing research into this, and this is actually um, one of the things I would love to hear um, you talk about, because this is one of the many, many Many chapters in the book that is so interesting in terms of its explicit marking of the importance of different kinds of sources for giving us access to perspectives and kinds of stories that we otherwise might not know about. So there's a really interesting use of sources here. Um, and for example, um, you give us a translation of a slave girl contract from the local archives. So can you, Kristen, for us talk about um, the importance of, uh, let's say, local archives as a source base for the book and perhaps um, what kinds of sources for you were most helpful in telling the story about slave girls in 1920s China and giving us access, uh, insofar as we can have it, to that kind of perspective? Sure. You know, my first project was on police, and that really made me aware of how rich police sources are. And I think most, uh, most, a lot of historians know this. I mean, I recently I was reading uh, Natalie Davis's uh, fiction from the archives in which she looks at some court records and police records. And really the police are the people who are trying to keep track of local society. So a lot of people who are trying to understand the lives of people who don't, who aren't literate, who don't make it into the historic record in any other ways, read police records for police observations. Of course, you have to treat these, these, these sources pretty carefully because the police have their perspective. You know, people are trying to cause trouble. Uh, you know, uh, these, the, anybody without a job is probably morally, uh, incompetent. Uh, the police have an attitude. On the other hand, I discovered when I was working on my first book that the police in Chengdu really by the Republican period, by the, you know, after 1911, after the collapse of the Qing, the police actually were of the people in a way. I mean, they were not ed- very well-educated people. They were rec- recruited uh, and given a just very short amount of training. And so in some ways, they 
were somewhat sympathetic. Uh, so a regular constable might not really enforce the law that well. His officers, though, were generally of a different class. And so there's this kind of police records often have this tension in them of, you know, two different uh sorts of society talking, the constables versus the officers. But in the case of slave girls, I discovered, you know, from the late Qing An, from the early 20th century through the 1920s, the police were responsible for uh, making sure they didn't run away, for recording a record of their sale for so so the the only written records that are easy to find that kind of uh examine the transfer of young girls into elite families as slave girls basically are police documents uh there are other types of sources that that we could go into uh later to try to get at some other aspects of slave girl life but you know the actual sale of slave girls uh these 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 sales were recorded or some of them at any rate were recorded in police files so as you mentioned i include one that actually comes from 1919, right, the year of the May 4th incident that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, and a young girl who's who's uh, around eight years old is sold into a family, um, and the record of that is is given to the police, presumably so that the family could, you know, claim her back if she ran away, uh, and also they probably had to pay a fee, the police... <laughs> The police by that time were charging for any transaction they could try to to to, to keep themselves afloat. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, facts that comes up in this chapter that's really striking and that really puts all of this into kind of relief is that um, you mentioned eight years of a girl's life could be bought for $14. And that's just when you think about that. It's just really, um, really kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, you know, and that brings up this question, eight years of her life, they pay for that amount of service. So she's working them for eight years. When when um, the family was translated into English by Sidney Shapiro, the edition that's available now was translated in the 1950s by Sidney Shapiro. And he chose the word bondmaid to refer to people like Ming Feng bond made. And the idea was, you know, they had, they were bonded servants. They were basically like apprentices for a limited span of time. And I thought a long time about that and finally decided that I wanted to use the word slave girl, largely because, you know, as with the story of Ming Feng, even though she only serves the family for a given amount of time, they then have the right and the obligation to find a partner for her to marry her off in some way or other. And that control that they have is, you know, seems, seems more excessive than is conjured up by the term bond made. So I'd made the decision to use a slave girl as a translation, um, for, for just because she is so dependent, the, the people in this category were so dependent on the people who bought their, bought their time when they were young girls. This is actually a really, um, I mean, you're bringing up a really fascinating issue that's, I think, important right now, incidentally, not just for how we do and translate and understand history and literature, but also for any of us who are academics right now, you know, thinking about labor politics um, in our business, right? There's a lot of conversation right now about how to think about and how to name different categories of labor, right? Are graduate students students? Are they employees? Um, What do you call 
sell them and uh, those have actual uh, real consequences <laughs> in terms of our, you know, our community and, and our uh, livelihoods, right? Very, very much so. Thinking very seriously about how dependent people are and what the, ca- the, the quality of their employment is, is, is very essential now as it was in the 1920s. Absolutely. So as we move um, into, the new ch- into the next chapter, I'll just mention also that one of the other kinds of sources that um, you bring to bear in understanding slave girls um, includes the writings of foreign missionaries. And this presence of foreign residents of Chengdu becomes really important also in the next chapter. Chapter two begins with the Gao patriarch in order to look at, in the words of the book, the gradual disappearance of the cultural sphere to which he belonged. He begins by asking, how did one become a member of the gentry and how is such a person expected to behave? Now, there's uh, lots we could talk about here. And just um, in the interest of time, I'll just mention for listeners, there's lots of stuff in the chapter that we won't get to. Um, But uh, one of the things that's important, I think, to mention is that... um, you know, this is a chapter that uh, is one of many that tries to take an approach that is both situated in um, an effort to contextualize and understand Bajin's work, but also to transcend it. So Bajin is very critical of the Chengdu gentry, but the chapter looks beyond those feelings to try to understand gentry culture from the perspective of those who lived it and admired it, as the chapter says. Now, one of the things you talk about here in talking about the kind of geography of elite life in Chengdu including homes and tea houses and theaters, family residences. You also talk about the founding and the emergence of new kinds of institutions, schools, hospitals, and other kinds of institutions that are often either supported by or run by or connected in some way to foreign presence in Chengdu. Now, because this is um, a a kind of voice or a kind of source that uh, seems really important throughout the book, can you talk a little bit about um, the the presence and the nature of foreign residents in Chengdu and how um, that voice or that uh, aspect of the Chengdu uh, population helps us understand um, what you're doing here in terms of gentry in Chengdu? Sure. You know, um, foreign missionaries, Christian missionaries, were very anxious to get um, pretty much everywhere in China in the late 19th century, the early 20th century. And they were able to come to Chengdu beginning in the 1890s because of the Treaty of Shimonoseki, which gave foreigners the treaty between the Qing and the, and the Japanese that gave foreigners greater rights to travel and to buy land across China. So, uh, the first Protestant missionaries arrived in Chengdu in the 1890s. And I should point out, there, there actually were Catholics there before. Uh, French Catholic missionary priests had, had been in Chengdu early in the Qing period, and then they began coming again later in the Qing period. So there were communities of, of French Catholic priests, and then there began to be communities of largely Canadian Protestant missionaries beginning in the 1890s. And the Canadians and eventually Americans were very ambitious as far as, you know, as you mentioned, setting up institutions uh, and particularly schools. So in they, they set up some high schools and then in in uh, 1910, they opened West China, China Union University. It was a collaborative effort among 
quite a few Protestant missionary societies. And that West China Union University became very well known throughout China for its medical school and its dental school. And they were able to get a large piece of land very close to the city, right outside the walls, to um, set up you know, build their house, build their, their school, school buildings and build their houses. And in some ways, as Chengdu kind of uh, deteriorated into a kind of chaotic warlike situation after the 1911 revolution, the foreigners were able to use their prestige and the, and the threat of foreign, uh, foreign military interference to establish a kind of their own kind of separate community. This was happening, of course, in other in other Chinese cities as well. Shanghai is the famous example of a kind of foreign entrepot in, in China. But the same thing existed in Chengdu, even though it wasn't officially a treaty port. The elites in, in Chengdu in the 1890s were extremely superstitious, uh, not superstitious, but extremely skeptical of what the foreigners were up to and quite hostile to them. By the early 20th century, a younger generation of the elite got very interested in some of the uh, uh, foreign knowledge that, that the Japanese were taking advantage of. And they, and they started looking on the foreigners in Chengdu as more of an ally or a resource and began cooperating, working closely with them to build things like the YMCA branch in Chengdu and to support the new hospitals that the foreigners were setting up. So the Chengdu elite was, was I, I believe, was fairly welcoming in the 20th century of this foreign community um, in, up until the mid-1920s when uh, the tide shifted and the foreigners began to be seen more as imperialist force. But in the period when the, when the, when the Chengdu's elites were working hand-in-hand hand with the foreigners, um, a lot of a lot of new ideas and new technologies were introduced in, in a kind of glow of, you know, this is progress and we can achieve it, even if, you know, even with a, respecting our own culture, you know, so there was, it was not kind of iconoclastic. It wasn't an anti-Confucian movement like Ba Jin believed in. It was a, we can preserve our culture, but also take advantage of new, new advances in, in medicine, new, uh, new approaches to schooling. So it was, a, you know, you might consider it a kind of golden age of, of, of elite foreign cooperation. The fact that the foreigners were able to live there and associate with Chengdu's elite gives historians a different window onto the history of Chengdu because the foreigners wrote a lot about what they were seeing. And again, like with any source, you have to be careful about how you use it. Uh, and I try to do that in the book by giving the evidence and then raising some questions about it as well. For instance, um, in, in the, a later chapter about women, I have an account of uh, a, a lady named... Um, named Grace Service, whose son was a very famous person named John Service, who got in trouble uh, in the McCarthy era uh, for uh, his suspected support of the communists. Uh, but Grace Service, John's mother, grew up in, uh, raised her family in Chengdu, and she visited the wealthy ladies of Chengdu and commented on their their uh, housekeeping. And so in the chapter on women, I use, on, on elite women, I use some of the evidence that she has of what she found, you know, what she found admirable and what she was not so, so, so impressed by among Chi in Chinese household management. So, you know, Chinese elite women would not really comment on each other's housekeeping skills. <laughs> so in some ways, it's good to have an outsider's perspective to give us a little glimpse into, uh, into, you know, what life was like inside a big household. It's 
great. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, the interest in, or for me, um, the interest in the kinds of sources that you're bringing to tell this story extends through the next several chapters. So we won't have time to talk in detail about all of the next chapters, but I just want to mention there is a chapter, chapter three, that comes right after this that explores the economy of Chengdu in the 1920s, looks closely at how Chengdu's families supported themselves, um, and in particular for me brings a really interesting set of sources to bear on creating this picture, including population censuses, records of construction projects in the city, which I think is a really um, cool kind of source, memoirs and local histories, and also magazine articles. And there's a really interesting account of the coffin industry, specifically that readers will find in chapter three that's really, really fascinating. Um, And so whether or not you're interested in coffins, um, specifically, it's, I think, a really beautiful account of a really uh, crucial, like crucially important industry that takes us everywhere from um, how expensive these were to the kinds of um, materials that were ground up and um, mixed in with the lacquer, right, um, for particularly expensive ones versus the kind of pigments um, and materials that were used for the pigments for cheaper coffins. It's a really fascinating account in terms of material culture, um, as well as understanding uh, the economics of the city. So this brings us to a couple of chapters um, that look closely at the lives of people who did not figure importantly in Bajin's fiction, but who nevertheless were an important part of the community. Um, This includes beggars, um, street musicians, prostitutes, uh, soldiers, and warlords. And this constitutes the treatment in chapter four and chapter five. So one of the things, um, again, that's really interesting here is... The question of, as a historian, how to get access to the perspectives and histories of um, these groups of people. So I want to just kind of hit the ball back to you and and ask you to talk a little bit about, um, in the context specifically of the uh, uh, sedan chair bearers, beggars, actors, prostitutes in Chapter 4, what kinds of materials, what kinds of source materials were particularly helpful for you in painting this picture, um, and what kinds of questions do you you think um, they most helpfully uh, helped you answer? Uh, well, once again, police records right. are useful. I used a lot of newspaper accounts. Uh, newspapers just were, the newspaper business was booming in the 19 teens and 20s in China. So Chengdu probably had you know, 10 daily newspapers, uh, um, and a couple of them were, were pretty influential and, and sold lots of copies. And the newspaper reporters like to give accounts of everyday life. So, uh, I think it's in one of the, one of the two chapter, chapter four, when I'm talking about, uh, poorer people, um, most, you know, most of the population in Chengdu was pretty poor and got by kind of hand in mouth. And there's a there's one case that I found a, a story I found in the newspaper that I thought illustrated that quite well in an account of uh, someone who killed his wife uh, and was discovered by the neighborhood boys you know because you know his wife wasn't getting up and so they alerted the policeman and there's a little newspaper account of that and it's it's I I feature that because it it touches on a lot of issues I'm interested in which is the the nate the quality of urban life it really gives you a sense of how there there is very little privacy in a Chinese city at that time in the poorer areas. And it's such a 
contrast to the wealthy, you know, Bajan's family, which who lives in a large compound with walls and, you know, they control the information that goes out about them as best as they can. You can't control it if you're just among the, the ordinary people. And so your life is kind of wide open to the newspaper reporters who hear these stories and, and go and interview someone or go to the tea house. That might be the place where you hear a story like this. Uh, so that story about the, the murder of, and, and why did, why was the wife murdered? It was because her husband suspected her of taking a couple scoops of rice out of it, uh, out of the basket that he took around every day to to to, to make a living. Um, so there's, I, I guess, newspapers are a very good source for kind of the texture of urban life, uh, and then police records provide another another account, which uh, and both of them tend to focus on the the more spectacular kind of crime type uh, 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 occurrences. So you know. I guess the challenge for historians is to get, you know, to to not overemphasize that <laughs> because that's what most of the sources. It's, you know, people don't want to be in the newspaper because something bad is happening. You know, how do you get at the, the quality of kind of the routine of everyday life? Um, that's a lot harder. <laughs> you know, I guess, you know. In the in the mage in the slave girl chapter earlier, I use there, there are very few personal accounts of poor people, you know, memoirs or biographies. Uh, there is one that was published in English, Ida Pruitt's um, uh, uh, Daughter of Han, which a lot of people in, who teach Chinese history, modern Chinese history also use. And uh, I used that a little bit, although again, it's a little difficult because uh, she, the daughter of Han, Ning Lao Tai Tai, actually lived in Shandong, which is so far away from far, far away from Sichuan. But as, as people know who've read her book, it's just such an unusual account, a, a, a valuable account of kind of the quality of relationship of a, of a poor woman with the people around her that it was just too tempting not to use. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really, um, really appreciated about this chapter, and I want to also just mention this and mark this for readers uh, or for listeners um, who might be thinking about, you know, how, um, what can I get out of this book, right? How can I use this book if I'm not particularly interested in teaching with Bajin? Um, there's a real attentiveness here to um, the kind of texture and the routine of everyday life, right? The, the chapter asks quite explicitly, how did people become poor? right? What kind of housing did they live in? Sort of what was the texture of everyday life that we can access? Um, so there's a lot in here um, that's about that kind of kind of access to urban life, um, questions of social mobility, questions of the link between social and physical mobility that readers will find um, in this chapter. And I really liked that um, about this chapter. There's also a really interesting discussion of opium, right? Yeah, you know that for that I relied mostly on secondary work because opium has been a topic that a lot, quite a few uh, excellent historians have been working on lately. So uh, most of that is um, you know citing that research. Mm -hmm. But it's a really nice crystallization, right, of of that in relation to this larger issue of the urban poor. Right. And the police were, of course, extremely interested. The, the, the whole. So my first book is about how uh, this new institution of the police, 
uh, took on this ambitious role of trying to measure the local community and kind of diagnose its ills and treat it. And so they, they, they gathered information on disease. They gathered information on opium addiction. So there's a lot of statistical information that, you know, the police were conscientiously trying to, trying to, trying to amass. And that's what, what largely, you know, among the things I drew, drew upon largely to, to create this portrait of the city, uh, not necessarily to d- diagnose its ills like the police were doing, but to kind of give you a sense of what life was like. So to understand the context in which all of these cultural and, and political changes were, were occurring and not occurring. I mean, one of my points about the slave girls is that their status changed surprisingly little over the course of the early 20th century. That's right. Why do you think that is? I mean, the um, chapter, this is chapter one now that we'll go back to, but the chapter does explicitly ask that question, right? Why did the status of slave girls not change um, very much? Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that before we move on? Sure. And and, and I kind of return to it in the conclusion because it, it's, 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 one of the que- one of the larger questions I'm asking is, you know, cult- cultural political change is very uneven. People get excited about certain things, and and even though they recognize some things are are a problem, they just can't deal with it. And I think in the case of the slave girls, everybody, a lot of people. I guess most people who articulated the, the problem, uh, articulated the issue, thought it was a problem, but they thought that it was not sol- solvable be- until other things had been solved, related to economic development, related to um, the shoring up of family values, relating to a lot of different things. And so the poor, the poor slave girls, you know, they were seen as, you know, this is something we have to get to, but we'll get to it later after we've developed the economy or after we've launched the revolution or, you know, there was, they always were kind of the next step. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Um, So let's keep going and go into the next chapter, chapter five, which is, again, one of this pair of um, chapters that looked at the lives of people um, that Bajan didn't really look at very closely in his fiction, but that were really important for understanding Chengdu in this period. And this is students, soldiers and warlords. So chapter five looks very closely at the history of warfare in Chengdu in the first decades of the 20th century. And it considers the effects of militarization on life and politics in Chengdu in the period in which um, Bajin's family is set. Okay, so some really interesting stuff is going on in this chapter. Um, the chapter shows, among other things, that warfare really importantly changed the socio-political order of the city. So this happened in at least a couple of ways. Um, the chapter talks about the ways that two distinct groups emerge um, as kind of mediators between warring factions. And it talks about the importance of gentry leaders, um, which we discussed a little bit in chapter two, and also prominent foreign residents of the city, which we also talked a little bit about. But it also introduces this other group um, that continues to be important throughout the chapters of the book from here on in. And this is the emergence of the Gowned Brothers. Okay, so Kristen, who are the Gowned Brothers um, and how are they important to the story you're telling at this point in the book? The uh, the Gowned Brothers is a translation for the Chinese term Palga, and this this is a <laughs> this is an organization that's somewhat shady, and whether or not you could call it a organization is a question too. Uh, they 
they it's it's a phenomenon that a lot of people call part of a secret society, the culture of secret societies. Uh, so it's an organization or organizations of men who kind of gather together in uh, in in what they call lodges or what the, the English translation is lodges to kind of pledge themselves to um, preserving local values of of uh, and, you know, values that might have changed over time. At some points, the Palgo are, are, are considered to be kind of loyalist to the Ming. Uh, so Sun Yat-sen, before the 1911 revolution, really wanted to hook up with them because he thought that they were willing to join his attempts to overthrow the Qing government because they were all Ming loyalists. In the Republican period, after the Qing had been overthrown, uh, the, the numbers of people who joined this kind of lodge increased very rapidly. I think the evidence shows, largely because uh, the formal authority of the government broke down and local life was very insecure. And so in some ways, these lodges became kind of guarantors of local security. But then as, um, you know, the, with the rise of these new younger militarists who were ambitious of, of, of gaining control over uh the Chengdu area or Sichuan province, or maybe ultimately China itself, these militarists tried to and did infiltrate these Paogo, create connections with them. And in some ways, um, you know, the, 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 these Paogo, these Gaon brothers became a kind of branch of government to keep, um, to keep local order. So they, they might uh, raise militia, they might, um, you know, keep keep track of outsiders, report information to to the police office if they, you know, were on good terms with the police. They could be on good terms. They could be on bad terms, depending on, you know, how how uh, who the authority figures were at the moment and how how much these Pauga, you know, felt. Yeah, felt that they were being supported by the authority figures. It's a very complex and murky history because they were, you know, generally they were basically an illegal organization. The records on them are very hard to come by. Um, an interesting new book um, written w- written based on very old data is called uh, uh, Prosperity's Predicament, a book written by uh, Isabel Crook with uh, some other authors, Gail Hershatter and and uh, and uh, Christine Gilmartin. Uh, it, she, Chris, Isabel Crook actually lived in a Sichuan village in the 1940s. And one of, one part of her work is on these Gown brothers. And she had the benefit of actually being able to talk to people about them and found out, you know, that they were kind of a shadowy local government, really. But it was, it was all male. And the values that they upheld, I argue in the book, included, you know, keeping women in their place, essentially. That's right. And this actually comes up um, really um, importantly, I think, in the next chapter, chapter six, right? Um, so you talk about this, the, the kind of place of women in public life in Chengdu, the challenges um, that women faced um, in terms of, um, you know, shaping their public lives and the relationship of this to the presence of the Gowned Brothers. And I think um, one of the things that seems to come out pretty clearly in this chapter is that um, because in part of um, the power of the Gowned brothers, um, among other things, the situation for women who were trying to carve out new kinds of lives for themselves in Chengdu in this period was actually different from the situation of women in other um, Chinese cities at the time. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, sort of what's specific to Chengdu relative to other cities for women in this period? Yeah, I, I 
do believe that um, because Chengdu didn't have that kind of modern economic sector that included, you know, many universities like in Beijing uh, or in Shanghai that included new opportunities for women to take part in public life as, you know, did happen in those eastern cities, um, they were... women who wanted to play a role in public were much more unusual. And as a consequence, these, these gowned brothers, you know, saw them as, as potentially challenged to, to the culture. And so they, uh, so they actually kind of, um, you know, reigned terror on girls who kind of stepped out of line or appeared in public in unusual ways. And you can see that in Bajin's novel, uh, where this, this, this fraught question, which, you know, an ordinary reader might have a hard time understanding why the decision to, to cut your hair short, um, was so profoundly important. And Bajin sort of depicts it as, you know, Oh, I'm going to make my parents upset. And that was certainly the case, but why the parents would be upset is not really explored thoroughly. And I argue that part of the reason they are is that it sort of targets their family as being counterculture in a way that, that people like the Gown brothers and some of their elite allies, um, the more conservative elites, really disapproved. And so they sort of became targets that way. And what were the material consequences of that disapproval? Like just to kind of um, make this um, into a living you know, issue for listeners who may not be able to kind of imagine themselves into that context. Let's say the Gown brothers disapproved of your family. Like, so, so what happens as a result of that potentially? Well, if you're, say you're a girl who, who cut, cut her hair short and wanted to walk to school, well, you would, you, you'd probably, you could probably be attacked. There's lots of evidence that, that, uh, the more kind of, uh, the more, the, the, the elite families that were more supportive of these kind of new cultural modes, if they sent their girls to school, they sent them in an enclosed sedan chair so that people couldn't see them on the street just because they were, you know, they were the targets of attack. I, I also discovered that a lot of the women who were young women who were like Bajin, who were of elite families, but who had these kind of strong ambitions to accomplish something unusual, change the nation or create a career, they, 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 they tended to leave Chengdu. And so in some ways, the fact that these, these gown brothers were um, policing cultural change led people who wanted cultural change like Bajin to leave. So Bajin himself is, you know, he, he left partly because he thought Chengdu was too conservative. And then he wrote this book that, you know, kind of <laughs> solidified Chengdu's conservative, you know, its reputation for being conservative, probably leading other people to leave. And it in some ways it was, it was kind of a vicious cycle, I think of, you know, bad publicity. And then Chengdu was quite isolated uh, in terms of, it was very difficult to get there during the 1920s and 30s because uh, warfare had, had uh, blocked transportation routes. But also it, it always had been pretty difficult to get there over the mountains and up the Yangtze River. So in some ways, I think Chengdu's reputation for being conservative exceeded the actuality. This is one of the points I'm making in the book. But on the other hand, um, young women who were, who were a little, uh, you know, who were challenging the norm were quite vulnerable, I think. Mm-hmm. 
thank you. So there's a lot more in this chapter in chapter six um, uh, that we won't have a chance to talk about, but that I want to just kind of super briefly mention, or at least some of the things for listeners. Um, this chapter also talks about women's education. It talks about arranged marriages. It talks about... Um, among other things, um, also foot binding in Chengdu, right? It had, you mentioned here that it had declined in the last years of Qing rule, but uh, it hadn't actually disappeared completely. So this is part of, I think, the larger story that you're describing um, just now. Um, and there's a lot more here for readers and for listeners who are interested in this broader issue of um, what it was to be a woman um, in this period and how women were carving out lives for themselves in Chengdu um, in this period of kind of upheaval. Now, the next chapter, the last body chapter of the book, looks at reform. Um, it looks at sort of efforts um, uh, toward reform in early 20th century Chengdu. Now, you talk, among other things, just to kind of get us back to sources um, sort of momentarily, you talk about the importance of publishing, right, in the May 4th movement. And this is a, um, you know, a story some others have written about, too, but it's, uh, it's really interestingly treated here. So specifically, you talk about the spread of political news in journals like the Sichuan Journal, which was edited by Li Jiaren. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, sort of the importance of those kinds of sources for understanding um, reform in Chengdu, and especially for the kind of work that you're doing here in this chapter? Sure. Um, right around the time, right after the 1911 revolution, it seemed like everybody wanted to found a newspaper. And so all of the uh, educated young men and some, a very few young women, uh, banded together basically and launched newspapers. And I focus particularly on this uh, man, Li Jiren, who, who uh, eventually uh, eventually wrote his own novels. He wrote a trilogy of novels about Chengdu, as much, much like Ba Jin did. Uh, he, he had a career and his goal was basically to shine a light on the corruption. So the newspaper business was very lively. You can get a lot of information in it from, from these newspapers about what people thought was wrong with Chengdu. But there were so many of them that they really are kind of cacophonous, very dif different approaches. Um, the militarists who were in charge at the time shut them down every now and then, but they sprouted up again so quickly. It, it's really a, a very lively time. And a lot of them have been been preserved. So it's, it's extremely rich source. But the other thing that interested me in the Jaren's role uh, was the whole story of how this, this May 4th incident came to be known and uh, all around China and actually kind of develop into a May 4th movement. So Li Jiren's uh, Sichuan Journal actually, uh, because he was very close friends with a few people who moved to East China, he went to high school with uh, with uh, some people who were students in Beijing and Shanghai, they actually sent him news and he put it in his journal. So, so Chengdu learned about uh, the May 4th incident in Beijing through uh, this journal very quickly after the incident happened. And uh, there were there was an amazing response to it. I mean, huge demonstrations. People were primed to become politically active, I think, largely because of the newspapers, what they had read, the, the political uncertainty, people's dissatisfaction with, with the, the, the turbulence. Uh, so it, it really was sort of like, you know, touching a touching a light to a to a can of gasoline, this newspaper business. 
So one of the really interesting points I think that the chapter is making is that the shape of um, that political activity, right, what it was to be politically active, wasn't just about um, nationalists versus communists in this period. And the chapter really does work to expand the scope to look at other approaches to political activity and um, sort of uh, efforts towards social change in the city. Now, one of um, perhaps the most notable ways of doing that is by paying close attention to anarchism in this context. So I know uh, by, by I'm going to ask you a question that's really broad and totally unreasonably broad, um, so we can't possibly be comprehensive. But for you, um, rather than just uh, talking about kind of, can you talk about the importance of anarchism in this context, right? That's a whole book. Um, but for you... That's, there actually are several books. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's a whole book worth of an answer. But can you uh, maybe just say briefly a little bit about what you take to be um, perhaps most interesting or important about the, the kind of work that anarchism was doing in this context, again, in the broader context of what you're doing in this chapter? Well, my my um, awareness of the importance of anarchism largely comes through the life of Bajin. I mean, there there are several excellent books on anarchism, including one by Peter Zero and one by Arif Dierlich. And both of them note how pervasive thinking, you know, the appreciation of anarchism was among active people who are active in politics right around the years, the 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 late 19 teens. Uh, so that's when Bajin became exposed to it. And for him, the significance of it, and I think for, for people in, in Chengdu and Sichuan in general, is it gave them this, this extra local community that they could feel like, you know, part of and feel inspired by. And particularly Bajin felt very alienated by his, his, his uh, family life. He, he didn't really fit in very well in, in um, the, the school he went to. He, he, but he found this community of people who were interested in these ideas and who were passionate about it. And so they wrote letters to each other. They kind of experimented with, so, with, with, with political organizing and running newspapers. And mostly it was an attempt to educate people about uh, an alternative, an alternative vision of equality. And so Bajin was extremely fired up about that. And quite a few other people in Sichuan were, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it sort of propelled them into being writers and being political activists. Uh, Bajin and a lot of the other Sichuan anarchists um, left uh, Chengdu because they didn't see a, a whole lot of promise there. And uh, Bajin himself spent much of his life in Shanghai where politics were livelier and where it was more possible for him to publish. Uh, so so I guess for me, the significance of anarchism is as an inspiration for people to get out of their locality and to start thinking kind of broadly about you know, forming alliances with other people. Uh, eventually, though, you know, the, the rest of the chapter also talks about other political visions. And like you mentioned, the communists and the nationalists. I mean, I, when I started looking at what the state of the communists and nationalists in, in Chengdu more, more, uh, in more depth. What's striking is how disunified they were, how many different factions there were, and they, they, they actually were pretty powerless to to build anything lasting in Chengdu because there were so many disagreements about approach. And of course, there was also a lot of active oppression by the militaries at the time. The other thing the chapter talks about, though, is something that you know. Most people, the vast majority of people, were not like Bajian or the nationalist communists. They were, you know, look, 
even the, the educated men were not necessarily all sucked up into political movements. And I try to make the point um, in this chapter that um, I think that this whole idea of building up cities and 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 constructing the economy was actually uh, more attractive to many men in Sichuan and elsewhere in China than revolutionary ideas were or 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 other sorts of political ideas so my main character my main figure i talk about for that is this very famous man named uh lu zofu who lived in chengdu in 1924 and helped develop a, a kind of alternative to the ymca there a chinese cultural center that would um develop chinese technology and and uh literacy but then he went on to found a very large company called the minchang uh, industrial company that was based in Chongqing, not in not in Chengdu, uh, but you know I think he represents a, a, an overlooked. I mean, it's not the, that sort of business person and entrepreneur is not overlooked now in Shanghai history. There are a lot of people who are working on business history that focus on Shanghai and the development of these. Sometimes they're called the national bourgeoisie, to use the the, the Chinese communist term, uh, but. It has been pretty much. Uh, it hasn't been it hasn't been focused on a lot in Sichuan, but I think there were a lot of people more than you know people who got directly involved in in the political parties, people who tried to work to develop the economy and to to develop you know to use a business term human capital, uh, increase literacy, develop education. So I think that that sort of person has sort of been overlooked in the in the historical narratives of the time. Great. So, Kristen, thank you so much. Um, remarkably, we're actually almost at the end of our time. Um, there's a whole epilogue, right, that looks uh, specifically, um, among other things, at the issue of family. Um, so I just want to mark this for listeners, um, because in the epilogue, um, they'll find, when they become readers, a discussion of the way that Bajin had a sense of family um, being the main obstacle for a younger generation that was struggling with all this change and struggling, in the words of the book, to narrow the gap between rich and poor to end the civil wars and to improve the status of women. So there's a whole um, treatment and discussion of family um, in here as well that readers will find when they um, get their own copies of the book. So we, there's so much more that we could have talked about, right? There's so much more in this book, um, but of course we can't be comprehensive. But given that, is there anything in particular, Kristen, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention or put on the table um, for listeners at this point? I guess there's two two things very briefly. The first is I want to emphasize how much I don't know about <laughs> this history in Chengdu <laughs> and how much is left to to find out. And I can give you just one example. There's a famous a scene in the novel Family where um, the young wife of one of the the, the young younger generation is forced out of the household when she's about to give birth because uh, her 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 husband's grandfather has died and people believe that the curse of the blood glow is how Sidney Shapiro translates it the curse of the blood glow will attack the corpse and present and prevent the grandfather from passing on to the next life uh, and that that phenomenon is you know, very badly understood. <laughs> I actually talked to quite a few historians of, of medicine and said, what is this curse of the blood glow? Is this something that Bajin made up? But you can find references to it in local sources. It's just nobody really explains how people came to think this. Anyway, so that's the sort of unknowns that are still out there. And then the other thing I want to mention was, I, I at the beginning of the talk, I mentioned that, that 
I got into China studies in high school and um, I'm very grateful to my high school teachers for, for presenting Chinese culture to us in a very thoughtful way and, and getting me, you know, to see the attraction and the appeal of learning about China. And so I'm hoping that this book actually might really the, the audience that I really, really hope to reach are high school teachers who teach world history or world literature and help them see how, you know, I use family in my college class, but I think that high school students will also really like the story. It's a story of a young person rebelling against old people. So young people love it. And I'm just hoping that uh, that this might actually somehow find its way into high school curricula as a way to uh, uh, improve, you know, in, in, in increase students' kind of interest in China using the power of this novel. So that's the other thing I thought I'd mention. Awesome. Thank you. So now that the book is out, what are you working on now? What are you currently inspired by? And what's next? Well, you know, Bajin wrote a trilogy about Chengdu and, and Li Jiren, the novelist, wrote a trilogy about Chengdu. And I'm working on the third book of my trilogy <laughs> because, you know, there, there there are some people in the, the, the English, the Anglo, Anglophone world, the, the world of people who write scholarship in English who are interested in Sichuan, but not very many. And so I feel a responsibility to that locality to make use of my uh, my knowledge of it to, you know, kind of insist on its interest in the academic community. And I've always been interested in the 1950s. Back when I went to graduate school, I, I took Russian for a year until I discovered how difficult the grammar is. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want to get now into the 50s and actually look at, um, look at how socialism came to be understood in the in a, in a very grounded location in Chengdu. Uh, because if you think about it, you know, um, Deng Xiaoping has this, had this expression, you know, we're going to build socialism with Chinese characteristics. I really think that in 100 and 200 years from now, it might be that, that the Chinese experience defined how people understand socialism because of the fall of the Soviet Union. There's, there's very few entities out there that are still trying to build socialism at this point. And if the Chinese continue to do so, which it looks like they're going to do, at least for, uh, at least for as far as I can see, um, understanding what Chinese think about, so how they conceive of it, I think is pretty important. So my plan is to look at 1950s and how this community, Chengdu, was introduced to socialist ideas and how to live like a socialist person and how cities should be organized to foster socialism. Uh, so I've just started this project, but I've actually entered it, you know, being inspired by ba by, by Bajin work through the novelist Li Jiren, who we've already mentioned a couple of times. Li Jiren actually um, continued living in Chengdu all of his life. He spent a few years in France learning about literature in the early 1920s. But then the rest of his life he spent in Chengdu. And so by 1949, when the Communist, uh, uh, the Communist Party uh, defeated the nationalists and took over, Chengdu was, was so-called, you know, was liberated by the communists in 19, very end of 1949. Li Jiren was the most famous cultural figure in Chengdu. And the Communist Party asked him to be the vice mayor of the city. And he agreed. Mm -hmm. And so I can kind of use his story as a way into, you know, how, how he understood socialism and then how he tried to teach the people of Chengdu what socialism was. And that's just part of the story. But I thought it would be an interesting way to begin because, uh, because his conception of Chengdu was was so rich because he had written all these novels about it. So I'm using him as a kind of way into understanding how the broader community in Chengdu understood what they were doing by, by you know, trying to achieve socialism. 
Awesome. Well, best of luck with that work. And thanks for taking time out of that to talk with me about this work. It's really been a pleasure, Kristen. Thanks so much for making the time. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us at the podcast today, and we'll catch you next time.